Amen. How you doing? Good. It is, I just, I love just to spend Sundays together and to worship and, uh, you know, every prayer, every word of that prayer that Ani prayed, I, I pray for you. And we pray just that God would meet us. And these next few minutes, as we kind of look into God's word, if you're, if you're new, we kind of do this every week. We worship for a while. We look into God's word. We're in a series looking at Psalm 23, which is one of the most um, probably adored psalms in all the Bible, passages of scripture in all the Bible. So if you have a Bible, you can go to Psalm 23. Psalm's kind of in the middle, uh, number 23. That's how it's why it's called, Psalm 23. And, and then um, if you don't have a Bible, if you want to follow along on, on our app, our church app, you can kind of go to Sermon Notes that has all the sermon notes in there. A lot of the stuff will kick around tonight and look at that. And then we're going to have a time of communion. We kind of do communion here every week, just giving us a space and a chance. It's a chance you can sit and reflect a little bit of what you hear, what you've been thinking, what you've been feeling, or you can participate in that. And there's communion stations in the back and up front and gluten-free crackers over here. And then we'll worship uh, for a song. And that's our night. And we just kind of create space for people to interact with, uh, with God and to have space to, to hear from him. And, and so I, my hope is that uh, you would continue to hear from him tonight. And so Psalm 23 is this series that we're, we're looking at. It's, again, just a really famous passage of scripture. Maybe you've heard it at a funeral. Maybe you've heard it somewhere. But it, it creates this incredible picture of who God is and helps us understand him uh, more clearly so we can follow him more completely. And it's just this great passage. But as we get there, uh, I want to just have you think about something, maybe interact with some neighbors, your neighborhood, kind of two, three people right around you. It's just, uh, as we navigate life, we know that there's ups and downs to life, and we know that there's adventures that we all have, just whether it's a fun thing that happened, a fun experience, an adventure that you had, an opportunity that you had. And so here's what I want you to think about. Just think back to a fun opportunity or a fun adventure or uh, something that opened up that you got to participate and experience that and it was just a blast. It was a lot of fun. It was an opportunity life gave you because life gives us sometimes those opportunities. So you've got 40 seconds to turn to your neighborhood, two, three people right around you, and just share what was one of those fun adventures, experiences, things that you got to participate in, this opportunity that you had in life. Go. 40 seconds. Meet someone if you haven't met someone. Life is filled with opportunities. All right, 10 seconds. All right, five, four, three, two, one, talking, 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 done. Okay, so I know you could go on forever. For some of you, like that group over there, you're like really into it. You must have had awesome adventures and opportunities. And so, you know, maybe this is something you continue with conversation with later tonight or, or going on. And there's lots of opportunities that life gives us. There's also the opposite side of that and some challenges that kind of come our way, right? There's these pressures that come 
just by being alive. There's pressures that come in life. Maybe it's pressures at work, or maybe it's pressures at school. Maybe it's pressures of navigating relationships, just the ups and downs and the nuances. Anyone ever had to navigate relationships? Can I get an amen? Okay. Maybe it's pressures of parenting. Anyone a parent? Yeah, it's just pressures that come with parenting. Like, there's no book that tells you this is exactly how you do it. You know, it's, you got to make it, especially if you're a single parent. Man, I, I can't imagine the pressures that come with that. There's pressures of managing resources and trying to make them stretch and make them work. There's pressure, pressures of just challenges that come your way and that life kind of throws at you. There's pressures that happen throughout our life. In fact, I just ask yourself these questions, okay? Do you, do you ever feel like your life is just one big hurry moment, that you're just always on this treadmill going, that you can't ever really ever stop? Do you ever feel like your to-do list is just unrealistically long and it just keeps, seems to get longer over time? Maybe when you go to bed, do you ever struggle to fall asleep? Do you have a struggle, struggle of trying to, to fall asleep? Do you ever have a person who has told you, hey, you really should slow down in life? Maybe a couple people. Do you ever struggle to relax or feel guilty trying to relax? Do you ever feel yourself getting easily agitated when things don't go your way? Do you ever find yourself self-medicating to escape or to numb experiences in life or the pressures of life? Do you ever have a hard time saying no? Do you not check your blood pressure because you're scared what you'd find? How many of you feel more pressure right now than you ever felt when you walked in here? You're like, that's horrible, dude. Why'd you go through all that? I feel, I feel rough now. Just... The reality of life is we have great opportunities, and, and those are fun, but there's also just these pressures that come with life that are a challenge. We live in a culture where busyness is kind of worn as this badge of honor and value, and, and yet I don't think it really is. But we, we say it is. But we know that if we struggle with the pressures of life, we know if we don't deal with them in a healthy way, it can kind of lead to higher stress, more anxiety, shallower relationships, can even hinder our walk with God. It can limit our ability to experience godly rest. And that's where I want to go tonight as we pick back up where we left off last week in Psalm 23 because David's going to say some things here about godly rest that we need to hear. And I think people who live in this particular culture, that's you, that's me, we need to hear it, and we need to wrestle with it a little bit. So just a quick recap. Remember last week we started with this idea of uh, this quote that A.W. Tozer had. He said, look, uh, whatever comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing because it's a picture of how you can relate with your creator. And a lot of people have miscued understanding of what God is really like and they have misinformation or they they see things in a warped way and and that's why the scriptures are important to help us see God more clearly so we could follow him more completely. It's this picture and so David starts with this picture that he wants to see and we see this picture all throughout the Old Testament and New Testament of, of David saying the Lord is a shepherd. In fact, he even gets more personal. He says the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. 
And that was the verse we sat with last week. We said, okay, we're going to rehearse this a little bit over the week. Because remember, the challenge for January is to memorize Psalm 23. It's six verses. You can do it. And, and the challenge was, hey, this first verse, this idea of, okay, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. And just let that sit with you a little while. What, what does that mean? What does that wrestle with? And maybe you're kind of coming back to church or people have invited you and you're not really in a faith relationship. Maybe you're investigating faith and, and I'm, I'm thrilled that you're here. I hope that this month gives you a clearer picture of what the Bible, what the scriptures have to say about who God is and what he's really, really like. Because I think you'd be captivated when you see him for who he really is. And so David's wanting us to see, hey, the Lord is our shepherd. And he's preaching that to himself, and he's saying, okay, the Lord is shepherd. Well, so what does that make you in this story? Well, then that makes you the, the sheep. Nobody likes that. We kind of joked about that last. You know, you're not going to ever find someone who has a tattoo of a sheep on their arm because they're just not cool. They're not intimidating, and they're not ferocious. They're kind of like the most helpless animal out there, and no one likes that. And, and that may bristle back against you, and you may be like, well, I'm not a sheep, I'm a shepherd. Well, okay, well, how's that working for you in life? And I think God's probably better at his job than, than you could be at his job. And, and if you're a sheep and I'm a sheep, then maybe we need to learn to be okay with that. Um, and maybe we could push back emotionally, but we said the serious takeaway was this. Your success, your spiritual growth, your spiritual quality as a sheep, your success as a sheep will be completely dependent upon your proximity to the shepherd. You ever wonder why Psalm 23 has withstood the test of time? Do you ever think about it? I mean, for generations after generation, this particular psalm, for some reason, has lingered with people. People have, have clung to this one. And I think it's because it has this comforting truth that's incredibly profound, and yet we can miss it at times. I think the point of Psalm 23 is to point out the fact that we have a Savior who is completely sufficient for all of our needs. And we tend to wander, because that's what sheep do. We look for other things, and, and I think that's the tension and maybe why this psalm kind of lingers around, why it sticks with generation after generation, no matter what changes, technology and atmosphere and everything that goes on around us and how the world changes, there's something simple about this that's profound and, and holds us, kind of draws us back. And so just listen to the next couple verses because we're looking at verse two and three tonight. So David again begins, okay, the Lord is your shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. And then he goes on, he says this. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along right paths for his name's sake. He makes me lie down and he leads me beside quiet waters. He makes me lie down. I think for a people who live in a culture that struggle with rest, that's a really important statement. And I'm not talking about rest like we think in our culture, okay? When you have a rest, how many of you have a, a lazy day, right? 
It's restful, okay? That's good. I hope you had some lazy days, and it's restful. But that's, when the Bible speaks of rest, it's so much more, so much deeper than just a lazy day on the couch or just kind of resting at home. It speaks of this idea of something that's refreshing to your very spirit of who you are. It's rejuvenating. It's life-giving. It's breathing life back into you. That's what godly rest kind of looks like. Peter Scazzaro, who wrote a book called The Emotional Healthy Spirituality and Healthy Church, he said this, in our culture, we are addicted to task and to work and to doing. We say yes to too many things, and if we are not busy, we feel guilty of wasting time and productivity. More often than not, we miss many opportunities for the Lord's restoration of our soul because we're so preoccupied with ourselves, our activities, and our addictions that we are unable to be fully present with the Lord. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. It's interesting. Uh, Philip Keller wrote a book called A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23. Philip Keller's a, a pastor and author, but was also a shepherd for about 10 years. And he writes from that perspective. Remember, David was a shepherd who's writing this psalm, and he's speaking about realities of what sheep and how they work, because we realize they're so timid. And, and what Keller writes is he says, look, there's four things that need to happen in order for a sheep to actually be able to lay it down. Because of their own timidity, they refuse to lay down if there's any kind of fear around them. And so if they're struggling with fear, they can't get restful. And so the shepherd has to do the job of removing fear. They have a social behavior within the flock that if sheep don't lie down unless there's not friction with others, if they're not playing nice one to another, if there's friction relationally maybe even between, they they can struggle to lie down. They're tormented by flies and parasites, and so sheep will not lie down unless they're free from these pests that annoy them. Lastly, sheep cannot lie down if they have this longing for food and the satisfaction that they need to have, their bellies full with that, and so the shepherd must take care of that because why? The the sheep can't do anything to fix those things. You'll never hear a sheep growl. Grrr! get away and scare everything away. They don't. They live in fear. And so for a shepherd, their, their task is to walk around the flock of sheep so that the sheep understand the shepherd's here. There's nothing to fear. They have to be led to this place where they can have drink and, and food. They have to be put in this place. He makes me lie down in where? Green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Rest is important. Fear, friction, flies, and famine. That's what the sheep struggle with before they can lie down. And the only one who can fix it is the shepherd. It it reminds us, it's really important to understand this. This is the second verse of this profound psalm. And here's what I don't want you to miss. Because it's easy in our culture to miss it. The Lord is your shepherd. You lack nothing. Now lie down and rest. In our culture, that is so counter. We're given authority. We're given this blessing. And then we're usually told, go perform. Go do. 
Go be active. But what's the gospel? Jesus loves you. He died for you. Accept him. Now rest. There's nothing more for you to do. Now, you may get assignments, and the shepherd will lead you places. That's coming. But rest is first. It's an amazing principle that we see all throughout the Gospels of understanding this truth of what does it mean for a people who feel pressure and live in a pressure-producing culture to actually learn what it means to live with a godly rest in their spirit and their soul at the core of who they are to understand what Jesus said is I want you to come to rest. Remember Matthew eleven twenty eight, You come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you what? Rest. He didn't say I'll give you new assignments. I'll give you another to-do list. I'll give you tasks and activities to perform. If you're weary and burdened, you come to me and I will give you rest. That is so key for us to understand and not miss. He goes on through different passages where he teaches, I'm the bread of life. No one who comes after me will ever hunger or thirst again. John 14, I'm bringing you a gift of peace, and my gift is not like the world gives, so don't be troubled or burdened. Your good shepherd wants you to experience rest, and so as I was thinking through this this week, just, I don't ever teach in acronyms, but I thought, be kind of fun to understand this idea of rest and what does the scriptures have to say about this over and over as we read through this idea of rest this godly rest is not just a lazy day but it's beginning to understand so this next slide Hannah it's just this idea of rest of saying okay this is recognizing that where my value comes from it comes from God it's learning to enjoy the things I have that idea of what we looked at last week contentment There's a secret to it, yes, but it's a secret we're meant to pursue. That I'm meant to savor my relationships with people and with the shepherd himself. And when I feel those pressures, I can actually trade those in for God's peace. And so it starts with this. It's recognizing my value and where it comes from. In our culture, we often confuse our work with our worth. When you meet someone new, how do you start that conversation? Hi, my name is, and you would insert your name, right? So you'd say, hey, I'm, I'm Lakin, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm Derek, I'm John, I'm Jack. You'd introduce your name, right? And then usually the next thing you do is you ask a simple question. What is it? What do you do? Because instantaneously, what are we doing? We're determining the value of the person we're talking to. Are you worth my time is actually what we're doing. Maybe below the surface. We wouldn't say that, but if we're honest, part of that is there. What do you do? Is your work worth something where I can, maybe I should invest some time here? That's the American culture that we know that we live in. But see, the Bible never teaches this. The scriptures point back to so many uh, that our worth is based in who created this and who says we have value, not what we do. Our performance is not how Jesus judges our value and our worth. And yet we live in a culture that kind of does that, doesn't it? 
that if we're just honest, that, that's kind of the underlying current of it. So many people grow up, so many people in this room grow up hearing a little phrase in the back of their head is, you're not that valuable. And so we set our mind to achievement and to accomplishment so that we could say, look, I've achieved, I've accomplished. I have value, I have worth. And yet what the scriptures say over and over and over again is your value and your worth is not determined by your work or what you've achieved or what you've accomplished. Maybe it was a teacher who said it to you. Maybe it was a parent, maybe it was a sibling, maybe it was a, uh, someone, a coach or someone who was in your life who just said, hey, you're never really gonna amount to much. The real reason you overwork and you push yourself and you pursue all the time is so that you can prove your worth. And for some of you, I'm talking right to you right now, you know it. And I I just want you to hear that your heavenly father, whether you are connected with him or not, thinks you are worth the world. He loves you. It has nothing to do with what you do. It has everything to do with who he says you are. His value comes from who he says you are, not what other people say you are, not even what you say yourself is. And the things that we say, James 1.18 says this, God decided to give us life through the word of truth so that we might be the most important of all the things he created. God says you matter more than the whole rest of creation, that you can relax and you don't have to try to prove your worth. You are made by God and you are you and you are okay because God doesn't make junk. He made you and he made me. And we may have setbacks in life and decisions that we make or other people make that damage and hurt, but that wasn't God. And he says that you have worth and you have value, so much so that he sent his only son, all the way to the cross to prove his love is not based on your performance. Matthew chapter six, Jesus is teaching about this anxiety and worry and stress and and he's saying, look, God knows even when a sparrow falls out of the ground, how much more are you worth than that? Jesus is trying to drive home a reality that if the creator of the cosmos can see a sparrow fall, well, how much more valuable are you? He's dialed in. He understands what's going on. This side of heaven, you may never understand how much God really does love you, but there's nothing you can do in this life that will make you love him more, and there's nothing you can do in this life that will make you, that make him love you less. He just loves you because he says so. So we begin to recognize, we have to recognize our value doesn't come from what we do. It comes from who we are in Christ. It also goes with this idea of learning to the secret of enjoying what we already have. We can live in a culture that is pushing us all the time to pursue more and more and more and more. Dot, dot, dot. It goes on for infinity. Isn't it possible for us to pursue so much other stuff that we miss enjoying the things that we actually have? We know that to be true. And so it's learning the secret that Paul talked about last week of just saying, hey, I need 
to be okay and learn contentment. That doesn't mean you can't have it. It doesn't mean you can't have acquire. I can't acquire, and it doesn't mean having things is bad. It, it just means that I don't have to live with that as a treadmill of my life pushing me to say that's where my value comes from. No, no. Your value comes from God. This desire to acquire doesn't have to be the desire that drives your life. We can learn to enjoy. It's, uh, I love Dave Ramsey kind of says this. Uh, we're busy buying stuff we can't afford to try to impress people we'll never meet. And so this idea of just, here's a reality reminder for us tonight. The greatest things in life aren't things. And so it's okay. Things aren't bad. But I've been to enough uh, deathbeds as a pastor and, and watching people. I've never heard someone say, man, I wish I spent more time at the office. <laughs> wish I worked harder. I've never heard anyone say that. I have heard people say, I wish I would have spent more time investing in my kids. I wish I would have loved my spouse better. I wish I would have developed my friendships deeper. I wish I would have done these things with my friends. I have heard that. See, the hearse one day will pull up at your house. You won't know it, but it won't have a U-Haul attached. Learn the secret of contentment to say, hey, I don't have to spend energy trying to, it's okay to get things, but I can learn to try to be content with what I have. To say, hey, I want to enjoy the things I have. Thirdly, it's, this, it's learning to savor it's learning to savor the relationships God's gifted you with and blessed you with and savoring the relationship with the shepherd himself. We've got to make a conscious decision to say I'm going to make time for self-care, make time for relationships, and make time for my, my shepherd. I want to be with him. He's my shepherd. I lack nothing. Well, I can't lack nothing if I'm never in his presence because that's where I lack nothing. It's in his presence, not out on my own. And so I need to invest time with him. I need to understand that and crave this need for relationships to be with. Uh, I often will go through this in weddings and things. And just There's this rhythm to creation in Genesis where God's creating and announcing this is good and God's creating and announcing this is good. And it's, you see this happening throughout uh, Genesis. It's poetry. And then all of a sudden it's like this scratch in the record player. Anyone ever had an old record player, right? And, and like you ever just scratched a record on purpose trying to play like DJ? Me neither. Um, so <clears throat> in that moment, it's this weird sound, and that's Genesis 2.18, because here's what it says. It's not good for man to be alone. And so it's not this idea of just a marriage verse, because he goes on and talks about that, and it, we, we could take it that way, but the reality is this, and I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Adam had all of the relationship, perfect relationship with God himself. It was the most perfect it would ever be in all of creation. And God still said, it's not good for man to be alone. And so he created us to be in need and crave relationships. And so it's important for us to learn to savor those relationships and to invest in them, to understand that this is important, and also to invest in my relationship with my shepherd, to spend time in his presence, to be with him. For some of you, maybe the, the best way you can begin to experience some godly rest this week is just to call a friend and go to dinner and laugh because you haven't done that in a while. For others of you, it may be that you need to take a half-hour walk just you and God, 
and spend time in his presence and just zero in, leave your phone at home and just say, God, it's you and me. And I just wanna listen and I wanna tell you how awesome you are and what you mean to my life. And yeah, I've got these tensions because that's kind of this fourth part. It's learning to savor that relationship. I was, as a kid, we always went to this Mexican food restaurant with my family and some family friends, and it was awesome, and it was really cool, but as a kid, as a five-year-old, what I really loved the most about it wasn't the food, and it was the laughter I enjoyed my friends and hanging out with them, but it was getting a nickel at the end of the night and going up to the counter, and there was a junior mint, like a bowl of junior mints, why is this important? I don't know. Um, I really wish I would have brought some now that I'm thinking about it. So uh, junior mint, I would pay my nickel, I would get a junior mint, and then I would eat it, and I'm going to tell you, mints are awesome. Can I get an amen? A couple of you enjoyed this story. Okay. Um, <clears throat> that's why you go to Olive Garden and pay a lot of money. It's for the mint, isn't it, at the end, right? Because there's something about that mint that just kind of stays with you as you leave the restaurant, as you go away, it lingers. There's something about mint that just lingers. Why? It's you're savoring something. It's staying with you. And so it's important for us to learn to savor relationships and to savor growing that relationship with me and the shepherd. And lastly, it's, it's trading the pressures of life because the reality is opportunities will be a part of life. Pressures will also be a part of life. There's no escaping that. But when the pressure comes we can actually take time to trade that in for God's peace. John 14 says this, Jesus said, I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart, and the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. Did you hear that? The peace I give you is a gift that the world cannot give you. So don't be troubled, don't be afraid. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus said, but you take heart. I've overcome this world. It's Philippians chapter four. Don't be anxious about anything. But through prayer and petition, present your request to God. So when the pressure comes, you can present it to God and say, God, this is pressure and I don't want to carry it alone. I'd like for your peace, that's verse 7, to stand guard over my heart. I can make a trade. And I can begin to be a person that lives with godly rest. And the more I do that, the better it is for me. I want to be a person that lives with rest. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. The Lord is your shepherd. You lack nothing. Now rest. It's important. It's an important rhythm to build in life. He goes on in verse three. He says, you restore my soul. That's such a cool verse. It's such an awesome reality. See, here's the truth. Life hurts. Amen? It's full of struggles, discouragement, depression, despair, fatigue, failure, frustrations, fears. We all have hidden hurts we carry from the past. We carry our wounds and our battle scars and our emotional garbage. And Jesus says, look, I don't want you to carry that alone. In fact, let me help offload some of that. And as we travel through life together, I'm going to help offload a little bit more as we go. I want to give you my peace. I want to restore your soul to how I created you to be. You fast forward a couple, um, couple psalms into Psalm 42. Maybe this is a familiar verse. You've read it, heard it before. Psalm 42, verse five says, why my soul are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my savior and my God. Anyone ever felt a cast down soul before within you? And so if you felt that, you understand that is a shepherding term. 
I don't know if you knew that. David, writing about a shepherd, the Lord is our shepherd, writes and uses a, a word here, a cast down. Why is your soul cast down? Put your hope in God. I will praise him yet. It's interesting, shepherding term. Cast down sheep is a sheep that, um, I don't know if you know much about sheep, they're kind of roly-poly, especially when the wool comes in, right? Um, so they have, a, they have a lot of things they can, actually they don't have hardly anything they could do. Um, and uh, when they lie down, if there's like a little swallow that they're in, right, and they lay down on your side, how many of you sleep on your side, right? And you lay down, and here's what happens to a sheep, because they're a little roly-poly. Okay, they kind of get there on their side, and then, and their legs are sticking up. Here's what you got to know about sheep. They can't jump. They have very little core strength. Anyone ever been on your couch and you've gone to get up and your body said, nope? Right? Anyone ever been covered up in a blanket and you feel like you're being swallowed and you're trying to get out of it and you feel like you're in a cocoon and you're like, ah, I'm stuck, okay? That's what a sheep feels when it's a cast down sheep. English sheep herders use this term, a cast down sheep. But here's what happens, it gets worse. A cast down sheep, when it's rolled over and its feet are in the air, its legs, actually the blood flow begins to, the circulation begins to go out of their legs and they're just sitting there laying and they're kind of, whatever, a sheep, to bah, you know, all that kind of stuff and they're there and they're looking for help because they are incredibly vulnerable then. They have no defenses. What are they gonna do, spit on you? A predator comes at them. They have nothing to defend themselves with. It's a horrible position to be in. What gets worse is their stomach actually begins to fill up with gas. Not like that kind of gas, but like gas in their stomach begins to actually shut off their windpipe. And in a hot day, a sheep that's cast down with their legs in the air that's been knocked over by life is hollering out for help. They have no hope in and of themselves to turn themselves over. They're toast within a few hours if they don't get turned back over. So who fixes the problem? The shepherd. Maybe that's why a shepherd would leave 99 and go after the one, because he understands the condition of that one. And it motivates his heart to move, to help a cast down sheep. Because here's how you fix it. You don't fix it like my dog who's laying on their back and I go, get up, and the dog gets up, right? To fix a cast down sheep takes time. It takes investment. It's massaging the legs so circulation begins to come back. It's rolling the sheep over and whispering, you're gonna be okay. You're gonna be okay. It's picking the sheep up and holding the weight of that sheep underneath your arms while the circulation begins to go and the blood flow begins to go back and the stability begins to come back to the legs so that when the sheep feels like they finally have the stability to stand again, the shepherd then and only then begin to put the weight back on the sheep and step back and walk next to it and not carry it. He restores my soul. When life knocks you over, you need a shepherd who can restore your soul. We live in a culture where we can restore a lot of things from paintings to buildings to cars to a lot of stuff. Listen, there's only one 
who can restore a soul. And David wants you to see that's what God's like. He makes you lie down in green pastures. He leads you beside quiet waters. He restores your soul. And he'll lead you on right paths for his namesake. That's where we're going next week. Here's the invitation tonight. For some of you, you're running so hard and so fast for so long. This whole idea of godly rest, you missed that memo. And the invitation tonight is to say, what would it look like to begin to aim your life a little bit more toward godly rest and experiencing that? It's not just a lazy day. It's godly rest where you recognize where your value comes from. You begin to, to, to live with this idea of contentment and you value the things that you have and you enjoy them and you savor relationships and you, you can trade those pressures when they come in for God's peace. You can let the one who can restore your soul restore your soul. And so as we close here in a minute with communion and with a worship song, I just invite you to take some time. For others of you, it's life's knocked you over and you're in that cast down sheep mode. And what you need in that moment is for your shepherd to come alongside and maybe for other people to come alongside and help be a part of that process with you. We want to be a church like that that helps people because we all get knocked down. And we want to allow the shepherd to restore our soul. And so, Father, as we um, move toward a time of communion, as we worship you, we pray that, that this imagery, that the Lord, you are our shepherd, we lack nothing. You make us lie down in green pastures. You satisfy us. You take care of the pests and the nuisance. You allow us to enjoy you lead us beside quiet waters that we could be restful. In fact, you call us to this rhythm of rest in life and in you. You restore our souls. And you'll lead us in the path of right things for your name's sake. So Father, as we think about these verses this week, as we recite them over, as we're trying to memorize this, I pray that you'd meet us and speak to us. In communion, we remember that Jesus, you put this all on display as the great shepherd, the one who came to give his life, to shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, to, to give his life that we might have life with you through faith. As we worship you in song, I pray that you'd move in our hearts these next few moments and this week ahead, we ask that in Jesus' name.